Well, good morning, Cornerstone. If you would, uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, our passage for this morning for the third and final week in a row is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 21. And let's begin by reading this passage together. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes this. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this passage this morning and as we even reflect on uh, what we've been reading and singing about uh, in our family worship at home today, we are reminded of your majesty. We are reminded of the fact, again, that the kingdom of God does not consist of talk but of power and that you are indeed a powerful God and a holy God, a righteous God. A God who is merciful, but one who also is just and who will punish the wicked. And as we ponder all of this this morning, we come to you really with a holy reverence. Uh, You might even say a kind of fear. And we come to you and your word ready to listen, ready to be instructed by what you have to share with us through the Apostle Paul. We pray that as your children, we would be attentive to these words and that we would eagerly receive them so that you could be honored in us and so that we might be blessed by you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's often said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I'd imagine you've heard that statement before. It's usually said in the aftermath of some kind of forgery. Uh, Some big-time artist rips off uh, the work of an unheard-of, unknown artist who's scraping to get by. Or a co-worker rips off the idea of another co-worker without giving them credit. A business starts restructuring their business model according to the pattern set by a more successful competitor. And as the wounded party seeks solace among their friends, and as their friends try to find the silver lining in this dark cloud, they're told, well, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It's a statement 
meant to appeal to our pride. If others won't recognize our greatness, at least they can, we can find solace in the fact that our competition can recognize it. The thing is, it's a true statement. Imitation really is the sincerest form of flattery. I think back to when I was a boy, for instance, and when I was playing basketball, I, I always knew the number I wanted, and that was the number worn by my idol, David Robinson, number 50. When I played hockey and I fashioned myself as a speedy right wing, then I was number nine, like Paul Correa. And then when I moved to defense, it became number seven, like Chris Chelios. Point being, I saw each of those men as the best of the best at what they did and at what I wanted to do. And so I tried to follow their example, uh, even down to the very number that they wore. And, and I'm not even counting the hair, by the way. I'm not about to talk about my short-lived hockey hair phase, right? This is what imitation communicates. It's saying that someone's ideas or their skill is so excellent that it really can't be improved upon. In a sense, there are no weaknesses in the player's game, no imperfections in their business model. And so rather than coming up with something that can top what's out there, the only recourse left is to copy it. When it's performed by the business competitor, it's almost a sign of resignation or defeat. Kind of a, you know, if you can't beat them, then join them attitude. When it's performed by the aspiring athlete or, or fledgling artist, it's a sign of admiration. The one they imitate is seen as a target to aim for, as a, as a goal to achieve. To match their level of talent is seen as a sign of maturity in their craft. But in whatever form it takes, imitation is ultimately a sign of esteem and respect for the imitated. What they have to say, what they do, is so excellent that it's worthy of emulation. And this attitude is the attitude that we're supposed to have as Christians with respect to the apostles. The apostles, of course, are those individuals who were directly commissioned by Christ to serve as the foundation for his church. And in this sense, they not only serve as the principal instructors of the church, but even as our primary examples. I think we're probably prone to forget this point at times. There are other men, of course, in Scripture who are exemplary for a variety of different reasons. Uh, Abraham, for instance, is viewed as the ultimate example of faith. Uh, Moses of meekness or gentleness and conduct. Joshua is known for his obedience. David for his zeal. Uh, Daniel is an example of integrity. However, only the apostles can be said to uniquely serve as our examples for what it means to be a Christian. Since really they, more than anyone else, right? They and really only they, actually knew Christ. I point this out fairly frequently, but you have to keep in mind, Jesus didn't write any books, and he didn't have this long and well-established and well-known public ministry. No, his public ministry only lasted about three and a half years. And he spent the vast majority of that simply training the men who had become the foundation for his church. They were, in a sense, the product of his teaching ministry. 
Not only do these men offer us the most complete eyewitness testimony of what Jesus said and did that there is, but Jesus even promised to send the Spirit to superintend their instruction as they recorded and reflected on the meaning of those events. In short, no one knows Christ better than these men. And since being a Christian means being a follower of Christ, this means that no one knows what it means to be a Christian better than these men. Again, God has sent many prophets and teachers to the church throughout history, but only one group of men were chosen by Christ to observe his example and then communicate what they saw to the church, and that's the apostles. The apostles were uniquely given to the church by Christ to serve as our instructors in the faith. And so if we want to learn what it means to follow Christ, then we need to learn to model, to imitate their example. They are, in a sense, the target to aim for, the goal to achieve. If you want to know what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, then you look to guys like Peter and John and, of course, Paul. The question is, how do we learn to imitate this example? What is necessary to become an imitator of the apostles? This is is a subject we're currently exploring through the use of a particular image that Paul provides for us here at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In this passage, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to imitate him, to follow his example, and he presents this exhortation within the framework of a very specific kind of relationship, and that's of a father and his son. He says, verses 14 through 16, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. As I've explained in recent weeks, Paul is tapping into a very specific concept here as he says this. Uh, You go back to the Old Testament, and it's not only very clear in its expectation that children will imitate their parents, really even its demand that children will imitate their parents, but it also presents us with a very rich picture of how this imitation is supposed to transpire within that relationship. Again, Paul is tapping into that image as he exhorts the Corinthians to imitate his example here. And so the question that we're currently asking is, what does this image teach us about how we will learn to imitate the apostles' example? There appear to be a host of different concepts attached to this idea of parental imitation. And as we examine this passage in its context, I think it becomes apparent that Paul means to use this image to communicate these various concepts to the Corinthians as he exhorts them to imitate his example. What are those concepts and what do they teach us about how we ought to interact with the apostles' instruction? That's the question that we're exploring for now our third and final week together in this passage. So far, I've said that, biblically speaking, sonship is expressed in two ways. And we looked at the first of these expressions last week, and that's honor. The Bible commands sons to honor their father. And so if we're going to learn to imitate the apostles' example, this is one essential component, one way we're going to get there. We must learn to honor them. 
Imitation really is an expression of admiration, of respect. And for this reason, the Old Testament commanded children to honor or esteem, respect their parents. There are various ways that it expected this admiration to be expressed. Uh, they were to communicate their respect, for instance, in a way, in the way that they spoke to their parents. Uh, they were even expected to provide physical care for their parents in their old age. But really, the end goal of all of these expressions, the reason it commanded this kind of respect, is because of how this attitude helped facilitate this process of imitation. In short, it enabled the child to listen to and heed their parents' instruction. This is really important. It's hard to learn from someone that you don't admire or respect. Reason being, you're not going to be willing to receive instruction from someone that you don't think has anything that they can teach you. You go to Proverbs, for instance, and this is why the fool can't learn. The fool can't learn. They, they remain foolish because they don't think that there's anything you can teach them. There's a measure of humility required in learning. One has to be able to recognize that they don't know something before they're going to be ready to learn something new, to even be ready to change their way of thinking about a particular subject. And this is precisely what the fool lacks, humility. They're too arrogant to learn something new. This is why the Bible commands children to honor their parents. It instructs them to hold their parents in esteem. That way, when the father goes to teach his son and tell him, now you do what I do, follow my example, the child listens. They don't just blow off their parents and say, you know, well, what do they know anyway? No, they nod their head and they say, yes, father, and they follow his example. The problem that Paul is encountering as he writes the Corinthians is that they don't exactly have this kind of admiration for him anymore. Again, they're writing to Paul with a set of questions and and possibly even assertions about how to live with one another in the church. And Paul is writing this letter to address these questions for them. But the problem that Paul very astutely identifies, the one that he tries to address before he gets into his answers to their questions, is that they don't presently respect him enough to heed his counsel. We've covered this plenty of times before already up to this point in this letter. Paul has received this report from Chloe's people. And what he's learned is that in the time he's been away from Corinth, these rivalries have broken out in the church. The Corinthians are trying to make distinctions among one another in an effort to prove themselves better than the rest. And not only has this competition served to break the church up into different camps, but on the whole, the Pauline party seems to be a relatively small minority. Paul's teaching seemed too plain by their standards. In a society that valued philosophical depth and eloquence, Paul's plain preaching of a crucified Savior seemed rather quaint by comparison. In short, they didn't find Paul very impressive. And again, this is a problem because it means that no matter what Paul tells them at this point, they're not going to listen. It's going to fall on deaf ears. And and so what does Paul do in this situation? Well, he turns to this image of sonship. And he reminds them, now just wait a second. You need to remember who you're talking to here. You need to remember that I'm your father. And of course, that's true in a couple of different respects. Uh, 
As I've pointed out over the past couple of weeks, this is true in the sense that Paul is an apostle. That's significant because according to passages like Matthew 16, 18 and Ephesians 2, 20, the apostles are really to be seen as the founders of the entire church. Again, it's through their collective witness that the gospel has been passed down to us. They serve as the foundation of Christ's church in this sense. This means that as an apostle, Paul is the Corinthians' father in that sense. But even beyond this, this is uniquely true of Paul in this situation, in the sense that Paul actually founded this church. They literally heard the gospel from Paul first. And in this sense, he is quite literally their spiritual father. Paul reminds them of this fact. And the reason Paul does this isn't because he's wanting them to exalt him with some kind of honorific title, meaning he's not looking for their praise. Quite the opposite, actually. And it's not because he's looking for some kind of financial provision for, you know, for ministry support. Again, we learn later in this letter that Paul actually refused that kind of care from this church. No, he does it rather because he wants them to listen to his teaching. In short, when Paul tells them, I'm your father, he's looking for their respect. He wants them to esteem his instruction as a son would his father's instruction. If you think about it, this is even the reason he mocks them in verses 8 through 13. He does it, he explains in verse 14, not to make them ashamed, but to admonish them as his children. Basically, he's meaning to knock them down a peg in their arrogance, but not for the simple purpose of making them look foolish. He does it rather so they'll listen to their father's instruction. This is what Paul is looking for in this passage. He wants the Corinthians to esteem him as their spiritual father so they'll listen to and heed his instruction. But again, this is precisely the problem, isn't it? They don't esteem Paul. They don't respect him. So what happens now? I mean, you think about it, and and this idea of honoring, it isn't just an action, right? It's an attitude. It's a reflection of the heart. So what do you do when a child doesn't exhibit this kind of respect? How do you train their heart so that they will honor their father and their mother? And this brings us to our second expression of sonship. Sons don't just honor their parents. They also obey them. Once again, this is the second expression of sonship, which informs our understanding of imitation. Sons obey their father. In fact, if I could put it this way, sons don't just obey their father, but their fathers also require their obedience. And they'll even inflict discipline to correct disobedience. There are numerous examples of this sort of thing scattered throughout the Bible. The scriptures actually command this. For example, Proverbs 29.15 states, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 23.13 states the matter even more directly. It says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, 
he will save his soul from Sheol. Discipline, of course, is precisely one of the things that Paul is threatening in this passage. He's not just asking the Corinthians to imitate him. He's commanding it. And he's even threatening discipline on those who won't obey. He says, verses 18 to 21, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? in a spirit of gentleness. Back when we started our exploration of this image, I said that there are probably some elements of this notion of sonship in the authority that Paul is assuming through this image that can rub you the wrong way. And if so, then I venture that this is likely one of them, this idea of discipline. Discipline can seem harsh or unloving, After all, we generally want those we love to feel good. We desire their happiness. And so it can seem counterintuitive to willingly inflict any sort of pain on them. Depending on how it's administered, discipline can also come off as rather selfish. We've probably all experienced that kind of discipline at one time or another as a child. Uh, In fact, if you're a parent, I practically guarantee that you've performed it. You know, a parent has something that they want, some idol, perhaps they think they need, perhaps peace and quiet, for example. Their kids threaten that idol. They get loud, for instance, and the parent lashes out in frustration. They raise their voice and utter all kinds of threats on the children if they won't comply. If you've experienced something like that before, it probably put a sort of sour taste in your mouth and your attitude towards discipline. It may even seem kind of legalistic to discipline a child. I think of something that happened last Sunday, for instance. We were worshiping together at home before last Sunday's message, and one of my kids uh, was sort of slouched down. I think they were playing with a toy or something like that, but they weren't paying any attention to the song that we were singing. And so I commanded them to sit up and participate in the music. Now, in this instance, I didn't discipline them because they obeyed. But the reason why they obeyed wasn't because they suddenly wanted to participate in the worship. It was because as their father, the threat of discipline perpetually stands behind my commands. That can seem sort of legalistic. To command an action by force which the child's heart isn't engaged in. I mean, you know, doesn't 1 John 4, 18 state, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So isn't that kind of hypocritical to obey simply out of a fear of punishment? I mean, what role might punishment have to do with obedience? If fear is the only thing driving it, you can't really call it worship, right? So isn't that just training hypocrisy? And the answer is actually no. You see, there are really two main reasons why the Bible commands discipline in the Old Testament. We touched on the first of these two reasons last week, and that's to serve as a warning for those observing the disobedient or unruly child. For instance, the penalty for striking one's parents and even for cursing one's parents, according to Exodus 21, was death under the Old Covenant. 
Now, again, that probably seems harsh. That probably seems excessive or disproportionate. I mean, it's just words, right? Or supposing they even strike the parents. I mean, Moses also commands eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in the very same chapter. And and doesn't he do that to prevent people from taking more than that, according to what Jesus teaches us about that command in Matthew 5? Meaning, isn't that a command instituted to keep punishments equitable so that the time would not exceed the crime, so to speak? How is death for striking or even simply cursing one's parents equitable? It seems unjust. It seems unfair. It seems unjust. It seems unfair, that is, until you examine the fifth commandment. And understand that there's a promise entailed in this command, quote, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's a command that has to do with the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic law. Again, the Old Testament had this expectation that children would imitate their parents, that they would learn from, be instructed by their parents. And what this meant is that it expected obedience to the Mosaic law to be passed down from one generation to the next. Later generations would listen to their parents' instruction, walk in the ways of Moses, and be blessed. This is why the command says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's because if children didn't honor their parents, then they wouldn't heed their instruction, and so they wouldn't walk in the ways of Moses, and then all the curses of the law would come upon them, and they'd be spit out of the land. These are some serious curses. We're talking pestilence, drought, starvation, war. I mean, I don't have the time to get into all of this in detail with you this morning. You can go and read Deuteronomy 28 and 29 on your own. But suffice to say, it makes COVID-19 and a 15% unemployment rate look like child's play. Now really think about this for a moment. Consider, for instance, this statement in Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19. Moses says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. He says, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Do you hear this? Here's someone who's thinking to themselves, it won't happen to me. I I can disobey God and I'm fine. Moses calls this a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. This thought that says, I'm okay, I'm fine, nothing's going to happen to me. So what is that fruit? He explains, this will lead lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Do you understand what he's saying there? It's not just the people that people will suffer on account of this disobedient heart. It's not just that that's going to happen, but that all of Israel will suffer because of this disobedience. Both the righteous and the unrighteous, both the disobedient child and the obedient one. And so what does God command Israel to do once that root becomes apparent in a son or daughter's life? 
He says, uproot it and throw it away. He commands this both for the preservation of Israel and to warn the rest, those who are observing the actions of this young man or woman, yes, there are consequences for your sin. Fear the Lord. Honor your father and your mother. In the words of Proverbs 19.25, strike the scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. This is one reason why God commands parents to discipline their children, to warn about the consequences of disobedience. And really not just to warn the disobedient child, but even more so to warn all the rest of the children who are observing their disobedience as well. The second reason the Bible commands discipline is because through discipline, the child's heart is transformed. In the words of Proverbs 22:15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 22:6 states the matter a bit more precisely. It says, "Train up a child in the way he should go, or perhaps even better stated, the way he would go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it." Just so you know, contrary to popular belief, this verse is not saying that if you train a child well, then they won't rebel later on. Rather, what it is saying is that the heart of a child is evil. And so if you refuse to correct a child and simply allow him to follow the evil inclinations of his heart, then even once he's old, he will not depart from his evil ways. It's kind of like the proverbial, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's warning the parent that the longer discipline is delayed, the more difficult it will become to correct the child. They will become hardened in their sin, and the more difficult it will become to lead them to repentance. It's a passage aimed not just at training the child, but it's encouraging the parent to train them early, not delaying the disciplinary instruction of the parent. The truth is, if the authority that Paul is expressing in this passage seems loathsome to you, this also might be a reason why. It may be, not because you had overly harsh or restrictive parents, but rather because you had overly indulgent and permissive ones. Meaning you never had that natural rebellion that exists inside of you and that has existed inside all of us since the very first rebellion of our father Adam. You haven't had that rebellion driven out. You were trained not to fear. You were trained not to honor authority by your parents' leniency. One thinks of Eli, whose sons blasphemed God by treating the people's offerings with contempt and whom God punishes since, quote, he did not restrain them. It really cuts two ways. Overly severe discipline can harden the heart of a child, but so can a lack of discipline. And that may be why you kick against this passage, because discipline is actually intended to train the heart of a child, and yours was never trained. 
like an invasive, species, an invasive species of vine, the rebellion in your heart was never cut back, and so it ran wild. And now it's spread throughout the hearts of your heart, the thoughts of your heart. It's so spread throughout your heart that it actually makes you despise authority instead of honor it. Discipline is intended to correct that. It's intended to tame the wicked inclinations of a child's heart. How does this work? Well, one way I just mentioned. It teaches the child to respect their parents' authority, which then prepares them to listen to and heed their instruction. You know, I use the word respect here, but that's really not the word I want to use. The word I want to use is fear. But I think in our day and age, it has all kinds of negative connotations attached to it. Biblically speaking, to fear means to stand in awe of or to have reverence for. But the reason why we use fear instead of respect is because that respect entails a knowledge of how dangerous the object is if it's not treated with respect. It's sort of like handling a gun, for instance, or swimming in the ocean. It's not that you're shivering in terror at the thought, but you still respect the power of those objects enough that you're not reckless in your interactions with them. They even command a certain measure of your attention to interact with them in a very specific way. That is the biblical idea of fear. And that's partly what discipline teaches the child, to fear their parents in that sense. And this not only prepares them to listen and receive their instruction, you know, just like how my child sat up and participated in the singing during our worship last week, not because I threatened discipline, but because they've been disciplined enough in other instances that they know they need to listen to my voice, it not only does this, but it even shapes the heart to possess an actual kind of reverence for their parents. You think of God's dealings with the sons of Korah, and even Aaron and Miriam, and how it taught them to respect his servant Moses. Or even the Holy Spirit's dealings with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Apostle Peter, and the fear and awe that this created in the church at that time. There's a kind of awe, right, that comes out of discipline, that teaches the discipline to actually respect the authority of the one who wields the rod. It's like the story I told you last week about my daughter telling one of my sons to say my name and then watching my reaction. You know, to my knowledge, I've never corrected my children for not calling me dad. But over the years, the notion of discipline has so reinforced this idea that we are not peers, that I, I'm actually an authority in her life, that even without me saying it, Something about the idea of calling me by my name feels wrong to her. This attitude is, is, is important because, again, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. A child will not imitate a parent they don't respect. Discipline trains their heart in that sense. It teaches them to fear and honor their parents. Again, it drives out the natural rebellion that exists in the heart of a child. But even more fundamentally than this, discipline. And discipline specifically that's associated with obedience. 
it demonstrates for the child the wisdom of the parent's instruction. And it's really at this point, when the child sees the wisdom of their parent's instruction, that their heart is changed, and they begin to actually value the truth that their parents are seeking to impart. Again, you go back to the Old Testament, and this is part of the the instruction that the Scripture is trying to impart to children. It's the value of wisdom. It's trying to teach them to cherish and value wisdom. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9 declares, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Likewise, Psalm 119, which is really an entire psalm written to teach the wisdom and beauty of God's word, and which even appears to be written to be memorized, and also happens to be the longest single chapter in the Bible, It declares, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I tell you, this is a major objective in the training of a child, to teach them to see the value of wisdom and instruction. And the reason that's such a major objective is because you can't achieve repentance without it. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, and it literally means a change of mind. And I really think that's a fantastic way of describing what God is aiming for in his people. It's not just a mere external change of action, but an internal change of mind, a transformation of a person's inner convictions, which then works its way out into a person's life. And so this is what the Bible is aiming for in the life of the child. It's wanting the child to see the beauty of wisdom and instruction so that they'll actually begin to value it. The problem is that children are so foolish in their thinking that they're often unable to perceive the value of wisdom. And so they are unable to desire it. Again, that's not to say that they're unintelligent. I've said before, I've known plenty of children who I could tell their brain was sharper than mine. Kids can be very clever. But that's not the same thing as saying that they're wise. It's not the same thing as saying they possess understanding. That comes through experience and the development of character, and that's precisely what children lack. And this often makes them unable to treasure wisdom. I mean, you ask a three-year-old what they want for dinner, and they're likely bound to ask for ice cream. That's not because they're dumb. It's because they lack the maturity to understand the relationship between diet and health and appreciate the long-term benefits of nutrition over the short-term benefits of a tasty dessert. And of course, again, this is precisely why God has given children parents to really protect them from their own foolishness and train them until such a time that hopefully they become wise and can survive and flourish on their own. So how does that happen? How does a parent drive this folly 
out of a child's heart and train them so that they begin to actually value wisdom? Well, of course, it's partly through instruction, through explanation, right? I mean, they they teach them, but it's also partly through this relationship between obedience and discipline. The parent provides the child with nutritious food, for instance. They tell the child, son, eat your dinner. The son says, no, I don't like broccoli. And then the parent insists, I understand you don't like your broccoli, but it's good for you, so eat it. And then if the child persists in their refusal to eat, the parent enforces their decision through some kind of discipline, some type of consequence. The child isn't wise enough to value the food their parents gave them to eat at first. They don't value their parents' you know, nutritional choices for them. But then as the child grows up healthy, and they perhaps even look around at their peers who maybe don't enjoy that same measure of health, and they perhaps even observe some of the negative effects that come from being out of shape, and they begin to understand, wait a second, I guess broccoli is good for me. I should probably want to eat that. Point being, it's as they are, in a sense, actually forced to imitate their parents, that they begin to see firsthand the wisdom of their instruction and have their heart transformed by the experience. No longer do they become reluctant to imitate their parents' example. Instead, they engage in it willingly because they've tasted and seen that their ways are good. And they even begin to grow still further in their esteem for their parents' instruction as they begin to see the value of it. I'm sure you all know how this works, right? I mean, experience is a fantastic teacher. You probably all had a teacher at one point in time who asked you to try something that you didn't quite understand at the moment. It didn't seem to make any sense. But then because of your admiration for their talent and your implicit trust in their abilities, you did it anyways. And wouldn't you know it, it worked, right? And then as they explained to you why it worked, you started to go, ah, now I get it. Now I understand. Conversely, you've also had teachers whom you didn't respect. And they told you to do something, and you blew it off, much to their frustration. And then after you tried it your way for a while, it suddenly began to dawn on you, oh, (laughs) so that's why they did it that way. You know, I didn't understand it until I tried it myself. I actually tend to think that's how most kids end up relating to their parents at one point or another. They hit adolescence. And as they start to form their own thoughts, they become arrogant. They think to themselves, you know, what do mom and dad know? They were rotten parents. I'm going to do things my own way and do it better than them. And perhaps the parents are pleading with them to listen, or perhaps they're disengaged and ambivalent to the whole thing. But either way, the child goes on to do it their own way. And as they experiment through trial and error, they eventually end up coming around to what their parents had told them in the first place. They begin to realize, well, wait a second, maybe they understood more than I gave them credit for. And they actually begin to go out and seek their counsel again. You often see this happen sometime around mid to late 20s. And quite often, after the child has their own children, and they begin to learn how hard it is to raise children. 
Well, if I could bring this all back around now, all of what we talked about here over the past few minutes, if I could bring this all back around now to this morning's passage, the Corinthians are sort of in that adolescent stage. They're arrogant. They don't respect Paul. And so thinking themselves better than Paul, they're ready to cut out on their own. Paul, for his part, knows better. He's just related back in chapter 3 how immature they really are. They're so immature, in fact, that he can't even get into this more advanced doctrine which they crave because they wouldn't even understand it, and it would only serve to hinder their faith instead of help it. And so seeing the immaturity of who he's dealing with, he opts for the route that you're forced to take with young children, children who lack understanding. And he says, no, I'm your father. You obey me. You do things my way. And if you don't, then I'll have to give you a spanking. Listen, that's all actually driven at changing their heart. Again, so much of the trouble here is that Paul is so advanced that they can't understand him. That's why he seems foolish in their eyes. And so Paul understands at this point the only way they're going to catch up and value what he's imparting to them is if he forces them to imitate his example long enough that they can begin to see the outcome of it. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to learn to imitate the example of the apostles, you need to take this lesson to heart. You must learn to honor these men in your heart And you must even train your heart to honor them through obedience to their commands and even their example. If you think about it, wisdom really is a cumulative process. You think about something like advanced calculus, and you're not going to be able to understand that subject until you first understand trigonometry, and then, of course, algebra before that. And you're not going to be able to understand algebra until you first understand the fundamentals of addition and subtraction. Uh, You take a second grader and you drop them in a calculus class and they're not going to understand anything, right? It's going to be completely confusing. That doesn't mean that the second grader should walk out of the classroom thinking that it's the teacher who's lost, right? No, they are. They're the ones who lack understanding. And so when the teacher says to the student, here, I'll show you how to do what I do. Let's start with some some simple addition and subtraction. They shouldn't blow the teacher off as a fool. Instead, they should begin by actually imitating their example in those smaller matters so that through experience they can gain understanding and then move on to the the, the more advanced subjects. Friends, so it is with the apostles. They know more than you. They're your spiritual father. And now you may say to me, well, obviously, Ryan, I believe that, but do you? Do you? Because I'll tell you, there are lots of Christians I know who say that, but then when the apostles say something hard, you know, tell them some difficult application of the faith, which they don't completely understand, then they balk at the prospect of obeying their command. They try to wait until they understand and agree with the apostles before they'll obey. Or they'll try to twist what the apostles say in order to make their words fit their own understanding. Listen, guys, you're never going to learn that way. Part of the way you gain understanding is by first trusting the teacher enough to imitate their example. Basically, you obey them 
And then after you've obeyed and you've seen the outcome of their instruction, that's when you'll say, ah, now I see it. It didn't make sense until I tried it. I really want you to keep this in mind as we continue through this letter. I've said this before and I'll say it again. There's a reason why Paul is speaking with the Corinthians in this way at this point in the letter. And it's because many of the things that he's about to say are challenging. The Corinthians certainly didn't understand it all. There were some applications that they clearly objected to. And don't think it's going to be any different with you. Paul is going to say, you need to do this. This is what I do, and this is what the church is supposed to be and do. What are you going to do when he says that? And when he says something in as a part of that instruction, that's rather difficult. That doesn't fit your understanding. Are you going to try to contextualize what Paul says and say to yourself, well, that was just for that time and place? When Paul actually says right here in verse 17 that he sent Timothy to remind the Corinthians of his ways in Christ, quote, as I teach them everywhere in every church, are you going to do that? Try to make his ways conform to your understanding? Or are you going to trust that maybe Paul understands some things that you don't and obey him? You've seen through the first four chapters of this book how the Corinthians were responding. They were ignoring Paul's counsel. They were writing him off as foolish. They were arrogant, Paul explains. And it was because of this arrogance that they were still so very ignorant. In the end, this is why they couldn't understand Paul. Paul's ways didn't make sense to them. And the reason they didn't make sense is because they were too proud to simply imitate his example and learn from him. Are you going to follow in their footsteps? You know, earlier this morning, I spent some time speaking with you about the curses that God inflicted on Israel for their failure to obey his law. Do you know why God did that? Do you know why he promised to curse them if they refused to obey? We discover the answer in Deuteronomy 29, verses 24 and 28. Moses says that after this all takes place, Israel's children... And the foreigner who comes from afar will all look on the land of Israel and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? It says, Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. In other words, why did God treat Israel this way? Well, it was for the rest of the nations. And so when they Disobey, right? Here Israel is. They have this unique relationship with God as his son. Uh, They are special to him in this way. They are supposed to be an imitation of him, a reflection of him. And so when they disobey, God disciplines them even with great severity in order that the rest of the nations might learn to fear the Lord, to honor their creator, their father. In short, they were disciplined in this way for you and I. For our instruction. As Paul observes in 1 Corinthians 10.8, after observing 
the disobedience of Israel. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. I tell you this for two reasons. First, I want you to realize that we can say the exact same thing about this letter to the Corinthians. Paul is threatening discipline here, and this takes place partly as an example to us that we might not desire evil as the Corinthians did. That's why the Holy Spirit has both inspired and preserved this letter, right? So that we, so many years later, might learn from this relationship. And in this instance, that would mean avoiding the error of the Corinthians and thinking themselves wiser than Paul and not heeding, even obeying his counsel. Second, I tell you this to warn you. You're not an Israelite, but that's not to say that you're not one of God's sons. By virtue of your relationship with Christ, you now are now a, a member of God's family. And friends, that should cause you to fear. Because our God, He not only loves His children enough to correct them, but because of the relationship we enjoy with Him, He will most especially deal in this way with us so that the rest of the nations might learn something of His character through us. You understand? We are His representatives. It's like I used to tell my student athletes back at Grace School. I tell them, every time you put on this uniform, you represent Christ, whether you're a Christian or not. So we're going to hold you to that standard of play. Listen, it's the same way and more if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. You're on the team now, right? You bear the name. That's a blessed thing, certainly, but it's also a very, very dangerous thing because God is quite jealous for His name. So don't think he won't correct you if you ignore his ways. If you're his and he loves you, he most certainly will correct you. He'll do it for the instruction of everyone else's looking on so that they might learn through you to fear his name. So brothers and sisters, let's make the commitment now not to be like the child that must learn to obey and imitate and learn through the rod. Instead, let's be like the one who, out of the great respect that they have for their father, eagerly performs everything that he asks of them. And with that in mind, I want to give you just one question for you to reflect on as we close, and that's this. What foolishness is there in my heart that has yet to be driven out? Let me say that one more time. What foolishness is there in my heart that has yet to be driven out? It may be that you don't know the answer to that question. Again, part of the issue with being foolish is that you don't understand. You think you understand when it's really just your arrogance that makes you think that. And so I ask this question in part to shake your confidence a little bit, to get you to question your own understanding a little bit, because that kind of humility is necessary for your instruction. And yet, on the other hand, it's possible that you do know the answer to that question. It may be that you can already think of something, some command that you know you refuse to obey, because you don't understand it just yet. 
If so, I want you to really reflect upon the wisdom of your hesitancy to obey. I want you to ponder whether you're ever going to become wise that way. And if not, what the outcome will be for your refusal to learn. What consequences God may be forced to bring upon you in order to teach you to learn. With that in mind, I want to close with this exhortation from Psalm 32. I think this passage fits the tone of this morning's text. For some context, Psalm 32 was written by King David, perhaps even after his sin with Bathsheba. You'll remember that not only did David engage in some very willful, even really carefully planned disobedience in his sin with Bathsheba, but He then refused to confess it afterwards, only repenting after Nathan very skillfully trapped him in his own words and convicted him in his conscience. You'll remember as well the very serious discipline that God inflicted on this precious child in order to train his heart and how it even cost David the life of the son that was born to him by Bathsheba. In this psalm, David expresses the joy and freedom that comes with confession and repentance. And then he says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray.